You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, I love that video. I hope you like it too, because I think that it puts words to a lot of what we're going through right now, because we do live in a different moment, do we not? We live in a different moment. But what I hope to encourage you with today is that we still have the same mission. And our mission here at Mosaic, if you're new, if you haven't heard this, is to make disciples. That's a fancy word for followers of Jesus through the core values of worship, community, and mission in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational context. And, and I think that these values are important. I think these values are more relevant than ever right now. I think these values can shape us into incredible people. And so, yeah, while, while some things around us have changed, some things haven't. We're in a different moment, but we still have the same mission. And so over the next couple of months, I'd like to, along with you, I hope, connect that same mission to our different moment, our same values to our different unique circumstances. And to to do that, try to do that, we're going to take a look at our core values here at Mosaic of Worship Community Mission in a unique way. And here it is. It's through the lens of the lives of three key historical Bible figures. We're going to look at worship to the life of Abraham, community to the life of Moses, and mission, that's just having a purpose bigger than you, to the life of Elijah. Three weeks each value. And especially if you're new here today, you've been just been kind of sort of coming around and kicking tires, so to speak. I think this series and these three people can really help you see who we're trying to be here. All right, so are you ready for this? You can just nod your head, yeah, or something like that, or lift up, turn on that cell phone camera with the light and blind me real quick, I'm just kidding. Here we go, we're gonna take a look at Abraham and worship today. This is gonna be from Genesis 11 and 12. You can follow along on the screen. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot, and while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor, they both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, also known as Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah, Sarai, was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. 
At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. It's the reading of God's word. All his people said, come on, help me. Amen. Yeah. Don't know if you've done any sort of global population searches lately, but we're pushing 7 billion, y'all. And of the world's nearly 7 billion people, more than half trace back their spiritual lineage all the way back to one person. One person who lived in the ancient Near East, this guy, Abraham, think about that. Four out of seven billion people point to him as the founder of their faith. It's a big deal. So why is this? Why Abraham? Well, it's because... We're going to see. Abraham was a worshiper. He was a worshiper. And his life, when you read it, I think it calls people to do the same. You can't read about him without noticing how much he worshiped as he went, everywhere he went. And again, we'll see it over the next couple of weeks. He's doing stuff like building altars, making sacrifices, praying for people. He worshiped as he went. Abraham was a worshiper of God, but he wasn't always. He wasn't always. He was something else first, and then his whole life changed how? It's this. God spoke into Abraham's life, and Abraham responded. God spoke into Abraham's life. Abraham responded. God spoke into Abraham's life, and Abraham responded. So what does worship look like then? Here's what we're going to see today. Worship looks like responding to the call of God. Worship looks like responding to the call of God. How do we do that? How can we connect with God, ultimate spiritual reality? How can we, here's the word, worship like Abraham did in a way that changes us? My question, how do we respond to the call of God? How do we do that? Three things we're gonna look at today to answer that question. Number one, we've gotta understand why the call comes. Second, we need to wrestle with what the call does. And finally, embrace how the call transforms. Why the call comes, what the call does, how the call transforms right here in Genesis 11 and 12. Let's go with number one and try to see and understand why this call came. Why does God call Abraham? All right. Dr. Sandra Richter uh, at Wheaton College, she says that most people, maybe this is you, when you, when you read this, when you look at this, when you sort of teach this passage, preach this passage, most people begin in chapter 12 right where the chapter division is. But she says, if you really want to understand what is going on, you should begin back and back that bus up all the way to 1127. And she's right. Why? It's because Abraham's story doesn't begin with himself. Abraham's story, the account of his life begins with someone else. Let's take a look. It says this, Genesis eleven twenty-seven. this is the account of Terah's family line. Who's he? Well, Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Okay, so Abraham's the son of a guy named Terah. What was his daddy like? 
Well, the book of Joshua, looking back on this passage a little bit later, the book of Joshua tells us who Terah was. It says this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, speaking to Israel, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and, uh-oh, worshiped other gods. So Terah and his children, this is saying, they worshiped idols, likely the moon. The moon was sort of the, the god of choice in the place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Why does the Bible include this detail? Here's why. It's because the story of Genesis is really, here's, I'll put it like this, the story of the seed. Whenever you read that word offspring, it's really the word seed. The story of Genesis is a story of the seed. What's that? It's this. Back in Genesis 3, God had promised that one day through one person, one child, one descendant of Eve would redeem the whole world. And Genesis now traces the story of that seed. The seed was first traced through someone named Seth, child of Adam and Eve. And it says that Seth began to call on the name of the Lord. Seth, it says, worshiped the one true God, oh, but as. The book now begins to trace the lives of all the people through all the generations. We watch in horror as the, re at the, as the readers, as the seed becomes more and more corrupted. And now here, the seed is being traced through a man named Terah, an idol worshiper who taught his son Abraham, now the carrier of the seed, to worship idols, worship the moon. The point is, this is good storytelling, y'all. This is the end of the line for the seed. There's no more connection to the one true God in the world. All is lost Oh, but it's worse. It's worse than you think. Why? Because not only is this the end of a line spiritually, there's an end of a line physically happening and going on. Did you catch this back in verse 30? It says, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was childless because she was not able to conceive. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, commentator, says this to summarize. The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. This text tells us there is no foreseeable future. There is no power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. Can you see? We're being told it's over for the seed. It's over for the children of Adam and Eve. It's over for the human race. That's what we're being told. What does it mean? Two implications. This means this, first of all. It means that unless God calls, humanity is lost. Church, that's why the call comes. It, because unless the call comes from God, humanity is lost. And I want to tell you the same thing. I don't think we got this. All right, I want to pause here. It means that unless, this is the whole point of Genesis, unless God calls, unless God intervenes in your life, in humanity, humanity is lost. And that goes all the way to the bottom of each one of our lives and even into, I'll include them, yeah, even my own kids. Yeah. My own kids. You, know, you say, you know, Morgan, but your kids are amazing. I know, and thank you very much. You know. and, and, and Carrie and I, are, are, as parents, and you've done this too, as parents, you try to do your best to point your children to God, live your lives in a way that would encourage them to follow the one true God as well. But I want to tell you, if the call of God doesn't come into their lives, they'll be just like Abraham was, a nice little cultural idolater. They might not worship the moon, hope not, but that doesn't mean they won't worship something else. 
want to say this. Just because you're not worshiping the moon doesn't mean your heart isn't at the altar of some other power. Look at this. A few years ago, a book called The Body Project came out. Maybe you've heard of it. The Body Project took a look at young women's diary entries over the last 100 years. Fascinating idea, right? These are two diary entries I want to read you from the Body Project. Two different diary, diary entries. Two different teenage females, each 100 years apart, all right? Here's the first one. It's from around 1900. Now look at the, the gap here when we get to both of them. From 1900, she writes, this young lady, resolved not to talk about myself or feelings. Obviously, she's never heard of Instagram, right? All right. Not to talk about myself or feelings, to think before speaking, to work seriously, to be self-restrained in conversation and actions, not to let my thoughts wander, to be dignified, interest myself more in others. You're like, that sounds exhausting. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't live back then. All right. Flash forward 100 years later. Second female, 100 years later. This is a quote our modern era. I will try to make myself better in any way I possibly can. I will lose weight, get new lenses. Already got new haircut, good makeup, new clothes, and accessories. That's my question. Is the modern teenage female freer than she was 100 years ago? Hmm? See, both girls in their own way are bound up, right? One on the inside by good works, one more on the outside by good looks. Different cultures Same result. Here's the point. Unless the call of God comes into each of our lives, we will worship something that comes to oppress and not to free because we will, again, worship something, respond to the call of something. You and I need the call of God. Unless God calls, we are lost, oh, but, and at the same time. Because God calls, we can have hope. Yeah, unless God calls, we are lost, but because God calls, we can have hope. And some of you, you're like, man, I came for this today. Yeah, you're because you're looking around our nation, right? You're reading the headlines, you're sensing the news, you're in your social circles, and you're wondering today, is there any hope? Because you feel like, maybe I feel like, the world now, similar to Abraham's time, has hit a dead end. How do we move forward? But I want to tell you, because God calls, there is always hope. I know that to be true. And here's where it always begins. God's call, and therefore hope, always begins small. Small. One person, one family, yeah, maybe one church. Abraham's world was a mess. What did God do to begin to fix it? He called one man in one family, and he said, follow me. And look at how this passage ends. It says there, Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. The point is, this is a bookend to the call. This is saying, after 2,000 years of human history corrupted seed, now the lights are coming back on in the house of this seed. In the life, by the way, of a 75-year-old. So if you're here and you're telling me, you know what, it's too late for me, I want to tell you it's not true. It's too late for that person, not true. Morgan, my family is messed up. You have no idea. Just don't read the next three chapters of Abraham's life. You'd be, no, you, you, you'd be thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm not that great, but at least I wasn't that guy. And that's true, right? Listen, all Abraham needs, excuse me, all God needs to bring humanity back is one true worshiper. Because God calls, there is always hope. That's number one. That's why the call comes, but, but before any of us respond to the call or ought to respond, I think we need to wrestle with this call. 
to rumble with the call. Before you say yes to it, you just might want to know what the call to follow God does to you. So let's do that. Let's try to see number two, what the call does. Let's wrestle with what God's call does to us. What does the call of God do? Here's my sentence. I'm going to read it and then try to break it down. The call of God, we'll see, sends us into life in the gap on a quest in order to be a blessing. Say it again. Sends us into life in the gap on a quest in order to be a blessing. Let's break that down. First, the call of God sends us into life in the gap. Look at Abraham. Uh, When God calls him here, what's he called to leave behind? Three things it says. Your country, God says. Your people, that's his lineage, literally, and his ethnicity, and your father's household, and go to the land, what? (laughs) I will show you. All right. So what are these three things? Well, people, country, fathers, household. These are the things that were the primary identity markers for someone in Abraham's position in his day. And let's just face it, these three things are still powerful identity markers, maybe even the primary identity markers for lots of us today. Because even today, one side says, what matters most is your country, right? Being loyal to your country above everything else. Another side says, no, no, it's not your country that defines you, it's your people, your people group, your ethnicity. But can you see God's call to us calls us out from being defined by anything else first. Miroslav Volf, Croatian theologian, watched his own family be brutalized, murdered, killed, raped in Croatia, in the Balkan Wars, said this, he's now a theologian at Yale, pretty brilliant guy, said this, quote, The courage to break his cultural and familial ties and abandon the gods of his ancestors out of allegiance to a god of all families and all cultures was the original, I love this, Abrahamic revolution. At the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture with its gods to the god of all cultures. A response to a call from that god entails rearrangement of a whole network of allegiances. Departure is part and parcel of the Christian identity. And I want to tell you, church, this kind of departure or life in the gap is what, of course, God called Abraham into. Think about it. Go out from your country, Abraham, and I'll bless you. Where am I going, God? I'll show you later. Abraham, I'm gonna give you a land. When? I'll show you later. Abraham, you're gonna have a child. How? I'll show you later. Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Why, God? I'll explain it later. What does this mean? It means that when you respond to the call of God, many times you live your life now in the gap, here it is, between promise and reality. Between promise and reality, and to live in that gap takes courage and it takes faith. Are you sure you want this call? Sure you want it. Second, the call of God sends us on a quest. Life in the gap, life on a quest. A few years ago, my wife, Carrie, yeah. For Christmas, she got me this beautifully uh, annotated, illustrated edition of The Hobbit. Like Tolkien's world, love living in it. But if you've ever read both The Hobbit and L-O-T-R, thank you very much, Lord of the Rings, 
you'll notice there's this stark difference between the two because The Hobbit, if you read it, is essentially a kid's book. It's a children's book. It's there and back again. That's the subtitle. It's got some nice adventures. You know, it's, it's a sort of a fun little story. Uh, and an adventure, it's that, right? I mean, it's this exciting thing you choose. You, you know, it gets you off your sofa. You go out. You have some fun. But essentially, you go back to your sofa and you pick up your old life. An adventure is there and back again. But the Lord of the Rings, if you read it, it's way different. It's much darker, it's much heavier, it's much more sad. Why? Because it's a quest. And a quest is not something you choose. A quest is something that comes to you, right? Bilbo, if you know the character, he chose his adventure. Frodo never did. The quest came to him with the quest. You sense a requirement because of what is at stake in the world. And by the way, you never really you say yes to it. You never really come back from a quest. You don't. In a quest, you either die for the quest or you are so changed by it, you don't fit back in the world that you came from. See, the quest, it so changed Frodo that in the end, you can read it, he felt more at home in another world than he did in his old. As a matter of fact, you could say that the quest prepared his heart for another world altogether. Might that be what we are also in the middle of right now. Hmm? I want you to know, Christianity is not an adventure. It's not there and back again. You go back to your sofa. No, God's call to Abraham and to us is a quest, right? Abraham didn't poke his hand up and said, pick me, pick me. God said, go, get out. And I'll tell you later where you're gonna go. See, are you sure you want that kind of call? All right. And finally, finally, God calls us life in the gap, life on a quest, and also to be a blessing, yeah. God said, I'll make you, Abraham. Here's why I'm sending you out. I'm gonna make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Love that. Right after uh, my first child, oldest son, was born, Carrie and I, we went to this church conference out in California with our Every Nation spiritual family. She knows where I'm going with this. And our son was like six months old, and he had one job there that week, in his mind, not to sleep. Not to sleep. Because getting your baby to sleep in a hotel, and some of you have been there, it's like some form of medieval torture. I mean, it's a fate worse than death, because all he wanted to do was be in the lobby see new faces, be in new places, and not sleep. And by the way, none of that's really changed with him, if you know him, but he wouldn't sleep. He, he would stay up and scream all night, every night. And so this one night at the conference, it was terrible. So I went to the meetings by myself, and Carrie was gracious enough to choose to stay in the room to try to get him to go down and go to sleep. And so that night, went by myself, and the meetings ended. Great night, great meetings. And I came back to the hotel, I get in the elevator to go up to my floor with like four or five other people. And as the elevator doors opened, could hear down the hall, and by down the hall, it's like 20 rooms down the hall. The screaming of my firstborn, like not just like a, like a little bit loud, like call hotel security loud. Like what are they doing to that child in that room? As I got out, I could instantly hear the thoughts of all the other people in the hotel because they could hear it too. They're thinking like, who's, Dad is that, you know? You know, what kind of terrible parent will let their kids scream like, thank God it's not me, you know? And so we kept walking all the way down the hallway toward my room and we got closer to my room and we got up to the room and the room kept getting louder and louder and screaming kept getting louder and we got to the room, they all kept on walking. So I kept on walking. 
<laughs> right past the door. Past the screaming child until everyone else had gone into their room and the coast was clear and I came back and picked up my dad's responsibilities again. The point was, it was just not my best moment, right? I was not a blessing right, to my family. I didn't want to be identified with the cost of what it took to be a dad. Okay. Story number two, flash forward 10 years from that moment or so. Now I've got four children. You're like, that escalated quickly. It sure did. <laughs> I've got four children. I got three sons and my sons are out now where they're a little bit bigger. We're all fishing together on this lake up in North Texas on a family vacation. We're fishing. We're standing there. We're on the shoreline there, lines in the water. It's early in the morning. And then I see this huge elongated scaly fish with a long like snout kind of thing come up and sit on top of the water. I thought, huh, that's a strange looking fish. And then it hit me, that's not a fish, right? That is an alligator. And it was, it was an alligator right there in front of us. And I said, boys, look at that. And as they, I said that, the alligator rotated 90 degrees till it's looking right at us. It began to move incredibly fast through the water and then dove down in the water coming straight for us. Now, at that point, what did I do? Did I keep on walking past my kids? No. I said, boys, drop your lines, drop all your stuff, go get back in the car. And so I stayed and I grabbed uh, you know, all our stuff and I made sure they were safe and I stood between me and that gator. you know. And then, and then I retreated because if it was going to eat anybody, it was going to be me. Now, it would have been you know, slim pickings, but you, know, you get what you get. So Thankfully, it stopped at the shoreline, and of course, everyone uh, lived, all limbs intact. What was then the difference between bad hotel dad and better lake dad, good lake dad? How did I come to be a blessing to my sons? Here it is. Because at that lake, I came in that moment face to face with a power larger than myself, a force larger than me, coming face to face with a power, a strength greater than mine, freed me from me. Something larger than me forced me to recognize I'm not at the center of everything and I had to make a choice. Now, no, God is not like a hungry, scaly predator, but he is a larger power that when he comes at us, forces us to make a choice. Where are we gonna go? What are we gonna do? How are we gonna follow him? And so if you're saying this morning, Morgan, I'd like to, yeah, be blessed. I'd like to be a blessing. Maybe you're saying, I need to be freed from something today. All right, and you're asking, where can I get the power, encounter the power to do that? I wanna tell you, it's right here. Number three, you have to, I have to, we have to embrace how this call transforms. There's a specific way God transforms us. Let me try to show you. If you know anything about what's called family systems theory, counselors in the room will know about that, family systems theory, it's basically the idea that your family structure has a lot to do with how emotionally healthy you come to be or how emotionally unhealthy you become. And one of the key principles of family systems theory is that two-person systems, two-person relationships, what's called a dyad, are inherently unstable. And so two people in any given relationship tend to emotionally triangulate with another source to form a more stable bond. It's this crazy, omnipresent, observable fact of sociology. This is why, for example, in case after case, maybe you've heard about this kind of example, maybe you're living it. 
Married couples, many times you are struggling, two-person unstable dyad, they want to have a child, right? They feel unfulfilled. Their relationship is struggling. It's unstable. So they triangulate down to find stability, only to find even when they had the child, the child didn't save the marriage, the relationship. Or two single people, perhaps, they do this. They'll triangulate down. They'll become sexually intimate, maybe move in together, thinking it'll strengthen their relationship despite all data to the contrary. There are a million ways this applies, even down to you, the individual level today. Think about, for example, the relationship you have with how you feel about yourself. You got that? You can picture how you feel about you. When we're insecure, we introduce, in order to feel better about ourselves, some third point, something that tells us we're okay, like a job, right? I get a career. I do great. I just kill it at work every day, right? Or I look really good to help me feel better about me, like I'm meaningful, like I'm something. We always seek a third point and triangulate down to get it, but it never works. Now look at Abraham's life. He's married, right? Two-person relationship. Abraham, Sarah, what did he want above all? That third point, right? A child, a son, an heir. And in his day, a child wasn't just a child. A child in his day was like this weird, toxic cultural blend of a son, yes, but also an heir and like the, the career dreams and hopes of the families, they were all being mixed together and constantly triangulated down onto the son. And this is why, and you can go on and read from here. Abraham and Sarah, in pursuit of this downward triangulation, they are unstable. They make terrible decisions. They do anything to have that son and it nearly ruins them and it ruins the lives of a lot of people who start to get in their way or they try to use to make that third point, Hagar, Ishmael, the list goes on. So, so how is God going to free them? How's God going to rescue, change them? Well, we see God invades their personal space without permission, by the way. And he calls to them to get them to triangulate upward. God's forcing his way, wouldn't you know, into that little dysfunctional family dyad to prohibit it from becoming this dysfunctional family triad. Because even if they did have a child, even if they think they've got what they wanted, they still won't be stable, healthy, whole. Because the irony is, as family system theory shows you, is that even when the dyad becomes a triad in a family, even when that seemingly more balanced emotional triangle is formed, over time still, two sides will bond together and work against the third. This is why, for example, one parent and a child can bond together and move against the third party, the adult, right? You see this a couple of generations later with Jacob and his mother bonding together to form a, a, a force against the father Isaac. And Christians call this tendency, no matter what we're after, sin. And the world in which we live or we experience this, it's called life in a fallen world. We have that correct instinct, right? I mean, we're seeking out that third point. We need it. But everything we lean on becomes unstable. The nation becomes unstable. Our country, right? The economy becomes unstable. Our jobs, our health, these third points always collapse. So you're asking, well, why is God different? How is God different? Here it is. Because wouldn't you know, in the Christian faith, God is not just one person, a unipersonal power who only does or only needs. No, he's not two persons. 
inherently unstable. He is Saint Richard, Richard of Saint Victor, Protestant theologian put it. He has three loving persons, the lover, the beloved, and the co-loved. God is love because God is loving. And when his call comes into your life, when he moves into your life, it's a perfectly loving presence. It's not incomplete. It's not selfish. It's not lacking. It's not temporal. It's not changeable. He's calling you to triangulate up into the kind of life you've always been looking for. That third point your heart seeks after, like a thirsty person in a desert, right? God is the only stable third point. He is, church, immutable love, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And if you want to know in the end how Abraham was transformed, it's because in the end, we see he triangulated up. So he built an altar, it says, to the Lord. He built an altar to what? To the moon? No. To his child? No the Lord, who had appeared to him. And I want to tell you, church, that's what worship looks like. That's what worship looks like. It's when the, hear me, the altar in your life exists exclusively for God and his purposes and his will and his ways. Your heart will seek out an altar. Your heart will have a triangulated point of altar worship. Be careful what you choose. This is inescapable. But Abraham triangulated up when he saw and experienced that God loved him personally. You say, I'd like that as well. How can I get that? It's like this. You and I have a greater, even greater reason how to know why God loves us and how God loves us. Because like Abraham, come on, Jesus, (laughs) the seed of Abraham, Matthew chapter one tells us, Jesus, the seed of Abraham, left his father's home and he went to a foreign land, our world, on a quest to begin a new family line in order to rescue our world from its dead end, from the end of the line of humanity. And like Abraham, he wandered throughout his life from place to place. He had no place to lay his head. And Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he came to earth. He left his earthly family on a mission to fulfill God's promise made all the way back to Abraham that Jesus would now become the ultimate one through whom all nations, all peoples, all ethnic groups, all humans would, could be blessed. But unlike Abraham, Jesus didn't just risk his life doing it. He gave his life. He laid it down so that all our dead ends could become new life. And that's good news. Came to rescue us from our barrenness, from all the grip that idols have on us. And if you'll see that and respond to that, that's worship. That frees you. In the end, an idol, any idol in your life cannot be just removed. It must be replaced. It must be replaced. And bringing God and allowing him to become that triangulated up third point, north star, now frees every relationship you have. I don't need you to make me something. You don't need that person, your job, your career, your child, your culture to define you. No, no, no. It frees you. It allows God to be the third cord of the strand that's not easily broken. And you can become a blessing. Let me pray for you. We're going to ask God's grace and help us to do that and find that place right now. Lord God, we come in Jesus' name. Think of that lyrics of that song. Sometimes I think of Abraham. 
how one star he saw had been lit for me. Lord, in a way, we're all stars in Abraham's sky. He looked up and saw us in the future. Generations to come are counting on, depending on his yes. But I thank you, he wasn't alone. Your grace came to him as well. He just said yes, and you took that and you work with it. You take our yeses and you take them and you work with them. And I thank you for that today. If you're here, church, in the room, you're online and you're saying today, there's some way that God's been calling into my life, some way he's been calling me to follow him. Maybe it's a leaving of a, a, some kind of thing behind. I've been struggling with it. It's okay. Abraham's call at 75. It wasn't the first time he had heard that. He had to hear it again. And maybe you need to hear it again today. That's okay. God takes our yeses and he works with them. If that's you, and you're saying, God's calling me in some way today to follow him in a way I've been wrestling with. At least I want to say yes. Would you raise your hand right now? You're saying, God, help me to follow you. Maybe it's with your kids, your marriage, your career. Yeah. Lord, I pray for these. Pray for us. Lord, I thank you as we look to you. We see you, Jesus, becoming the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. We can know, God, that when you make a promise, you keep a promise. Keep a promise. Lord, let your love flow and fill our hearts today. Enable us to be free. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.